McLeish, here we are back with episode 77. What a nice number. It's, an, it's a nice symmetrical number. What would they say at the bingo hall for 77? I don't know. Something sexist, probably. <laughs> probably. Probably. <laughs> I mean, I love those terms are quite offensive now by our standards. <laughs> that is very true. Maybe... Um, uh, two people bent down to pray 77 <laughs> or maybe maybe what else does a seven look like who knows i don't know i'm looking at one right no. now on my notes and I, I can't think of anything i mean I'm, we'll ask the bingo experts if there's any bingo experts out there do just let us know do just let us know fan of the gala. yeah <laughs> Uh, so how, how are you, Hannah Brown? Are you going oh, to ask me how I am? Because I'm about to ask you how you are. Call me Justin Timberlake, because we are N sync. <laughs> <laughs> well, what am I then? Uh, one of the other ones. One of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, someone Carter? Is there a Carter? I don't know. I'm not gonna lie. Wasn't a N sync gal. Sorry. I was thinking of the Backstreet Boys just then. That's, that's even worse. That's who <laughs> You've just Mr. offended. Mr. Carter, I think, comes from Backstreet You've Boys. offended and sink even more. Oh, no. The only one people really remember is Ramen Noodlehead, Justin Timberlake. <laughs> it was certainly a look, if nothing else. Choices were made, and that's fine. It was the 90s. It was the 90s and early 2000s. Fashion was questionable. You could get away with anything in the 90s. I mean, you really could in the 90s. It's quite astonishing. Yeah. It is quite astonishing. It's making a bit of a comeback. It is in certain circles, yeah. But do you want to dye your hair luminous blonde and make it look like ramen noodles? No. No? No. <laughs> Can I just, as a side note, speaking of your hair, yes. I know we yes. were trying to keep nonsense chat to a minimum, but listen, this is, a, this is fun. Okay. A while ago now, I think it was like last month, but that shows you how long it's been since we last recorded yeah. an episode. I believe your lovely other half got a hold of your phone... That's absolutely true. And put out a little public service announcement that you were going to cut off all your hair and donate it to charity. I would like to point out that when he did that, um, I was on shift at my work mm -hmm. and every single person that had seen it came to ask me if it was true. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I was like, I don't know. This is the first I'm hearing about it. And then you said, <laughs> oh, it was, it was Matt. And I was like, oh, thank God for that. Because I was like, Surely I am in Chris McLeish's confidence enough that he would tell me first. <laughs> no, no, well, no, it's, I mean, it's just not going to happen. Well, this exactly. Is the thing, is I tried to clear the air straight away and people yeah. still were messaging me being like, is this true? And <laughs> I'm glad to see that most people were absolutely horrified at the very prospect. That makes well, me feel quite it, good about it. It shows just how protective society is of your hair. Yeah, I didn't realise that it needed to have its own kind of protected landmark plaque. It really is, honestly. It's like a Maybe it's building. something we need to consider. Yeah. And historic Scotland, get in touch. <laughs> and I, I, but I still now have people being like, oh, by the way, was that true? Because uh, I was like, well, I haven't done it yet, have I? It's not yeah, happened well, exactly. yet. Exactly. And the way I found out about it is I was at work and my sister phoned me. Um, uh -huh. Being like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> I was like, no, no, I've been, I mean, there's a very outdated term for what, what that is called, but I was Facebook assaulted. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Indeed. Like it was 2009. Yeah. What a blast from the past. What a blast. So yeah, no, that is, it is, the rumours are not true. Do not worry. My hair is sticking about for the foreseeable. Excellent. I'm pleased to hear it. Do you have any news for me? Uh, I don't have any news, but I've we were fleetingly talking about this before the podcast. I was at a very fun event last night. Absolutely. I was. I was. So let me take you back. It was last week. It was nine o'clock at night. I was half dozing on the couch watching the TV. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens in your late 20s. Um, it does. It does. Just yeah. you wait. Yeah. Just you wait till 30. <laughs> On the TV was some Scottish news programme. And on it, they were interviewing peoples. 
and on it they were interviewing the lovely duo that is Ambrose Parry, which is Christopher Brookwire and his wife, Marissa Heitzman, who we have spoken about their books many a time on this podcast. We're big fans. And they were on talking about their latest book, which has just released. And at the end, they said something about, um, oh, Ambrose Parry is appearing as part of the I Write Festival in Glasgow. So, for those of you who don't know, I Write is a long-running literary festival that typically occurs in Glasgow um, across May and into June and onward. And I and I looked it up and I was like, oh, what's 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 this then? And I looked it up and they were they were doing a little book launch slash talk nice. at the Royal Concert Hall yesterday. It was in a part of the Royal Concert Hall I did not know existed, quite frankly. That's exciting. It wasn't in the big hall, it was in what's called the new auditorium, which was like a little concert hall. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, it's like a little room that's off the new foyer, which I don't think I'd ever been in either, because I always come in in the Buchanan Street way up steps. Yeah, but it was in the as well, usually. Yeah, it was through the other side. So that was fun. Interesting. Nice. But yeah, it was great. It was really nice. It was a lovely little crowd of people. It was about an hour long, and they were talking about their new book, Voices of the Dead, available now from all reputable bookshops. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Hashtag not sponsored, but <laughs> I love their books dearly. But yeah, it was really, really interesting. So they were talking about this book, which features um, mesmerism in it. And we have spoken about that. We have. That on was, the um, pod. Mr. Br- was that Brady? Birdie? Yes. Brady. Brady. No. Brady. Wait. No, it wasn't. Or was it? Or is it someone with the same name? I can't remember. We have spoken about so many people. So many people. Because Mr. Brady was also the Citizens Theatre person, but I don't know whether that, and now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, do they have the same name? <laughs> Maybe they do. Which is possible. Maybe, well, future us can find out. So I, and yeah, so they brought that up and that how that was the precursor to what we know as hypnosis today. Yeah, they're talking about how that plays a part in that as well. And our big friend, Henry Littlejohn, features again. Of course. He features again in the book. Which I was very, very pleased to hear because I found him a very, very interesting man. Yeah, and it was just really, really interesting to hear them talking about their... Because t- obviously it's their co-authors, but when you read the yeah. book, you can't really tell that because it's so yeah. kind of seamlessly composed. And then at the end, they were like, oh, we're going to be selling copies at the back and then we'll be doing a bit of a signing. And I was like, okay. And I'm trying to be more brave, McLeish, in my life, right? Absolutely. So I wanted, I wanted the book anyway. So I went and bought the book. And then everyone else was lining up to get their book signed. So I went and got my book signed as well. Quite right. <laughs> quite, quite right. right. Um, not going to lie, was fangirling quite hard. Um, but I managed to keep my composure. And when I got to them, and I was like, oh, can you sign it for Hannah, please? And I said to them, I was like, listen, I'm so thrilled to hear that Henry Littlejohn pops back up again. Because I find his work and life really, really interesting. Uh, Marissa Hitzman was like, um, she's like, yeah, yeah, he's really, really cool, isn't he? I was like, yeah, why don't we talk about him more? <laughs> he's so interesting. <laughs> but yeah, it was really, really cool and really nice. And I'm very, very pleased I did it. So that was nice. fascinating. Well yeah. Good. So that was good Lovely. fun. I did invite you, but unfortunately you were working. So I was. Standard. Standard. Classic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tried to get those hours in. Got to try well, and make the pennies. You got to do it. You got to earn those. Got to earn the the money. You see. Have you done anything um, exciting or out the ordinary? Nothing in particular, to be honest. Mm. I've got a fringe show. You which do, yes. It's exciting. So yes. I'm going to be in a new musical about the life of Monet. Mm-hmm. And I would give you more details. However, I still don't have a script, so I actually don't know what it's about. <laughs> Uh, but it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Are you gonna tell the peoples where where it is? Where can they see this lovely show? I will <laughs> when I can remember. So it's on Nicholson Square, which is which is very near to like Bristol Square and Potter Row. Yes. I can't remember the name of the venue specifically, <laughs> but it is quite nice and central. What's the name of the show? And people can Google the it. The show. The show is called Mirrored Monet. 
Okay, I'm glad that you remembered that. <laughs> yes, I remember that bit. I know one song because I had to do it in my audition. And yeah. I'm quite excited to read the script, actually, because I'm going to be playing a... One of the characters I'm playing is called Basile, and he was an Impressionist artist as well, mm-hmm. alongside Renoir and Monet. But he died when he was 28 because oh. he was promoted in the Prussian War. He got promotion because someone above him was killed. And he then died in that war. And I think it's quite sad, actually, if I am not mistaken. There's not a whole lot of information about Basile, but he was very tall. And I think by the sounds of things and by, from what I've read, the reason he was killed so quickly was because he was tall <laughs> and his head stuck up above everyone else's. Isn't that awful? <laughs> that is awful. It's awful. That is awful. The perils um, of being tall when everyone else was not. It's tragic. So yeah, it's called Mirrored Money and it's coming over from America, but it's going to be an all Scottish cast. So yeah. That'll be fun. Very exciting. And uh, that's probably the only thing, really, that is exciting news. Well, should I, should I start with my, my story for Fire this week? In. Let's go. Okay, okay. So, we here at A Wee Bit Gothic, we love McLeish. A good tale of some female badassity. Let's be Absolutely. honest here. We love it. We're here for it. Big theme on this podcast. But for this one, we are required to start with the story of a man. Oh. <laughs> Classic. Such is the way. Stuck Such is the way in. with a lot, of, a lot of history. A lot of history. Yeah. Edward Charles <laughs> Pickering is born on the 19th of July, 1846 in Boston, Massachusetts. <gasps> what a place. What a place. His was... name was Edward <laughs> Charles. What was his last name? Pickering. Picker, Pickering. Edward Charles Pickering. I can't do the accent, but I like it. From Boston. Yeah, there you go. Um, Would quite like to visit Boston. Massachusetts is a place that does appeal to me. I'm not going to lie. It's a state that I'd like to visit. I mean, there's Salem, Massachusetts. I mean, that's a win as well. Exactly. I'd love to go to Salem. That whole sort of part of the world and its history does interest me. So I would like that. Nice. Um, so his family is rather distinguished, it must be said. Um, his brother graduating from MIT, which is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And do you know, I did not know what that stood for until I researched the story. <laughs> I only knew because Collins in Rent teaches at ah, MIT. I did not know that. And I don't yeah. like that musical enough to remember that detail. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> Apologies. Listen. It's okay. What it's can okay. I say? Um, but yeah, was fascinated. I had heard of MIT, didn't know what those letters meant. Now I do. So there you go. We're all about learning here. Yeah, and his brother's also a professor of physics and astronomy. So Pickering would follow in the family firm, quote unquote, of physics and astronomy, receiving his Bachelor of Science from Harvard University. Ooh, he's a fancy pants. He is, he is. They're very high flyers here. Um, yes. I was trying to work in a Legally Blonde quote there, but I couldn't think of one quick enough. <laughs> that will always, that will forever be a chip on your shoulder. Oh, there we go for all the musical fans out there. <laughs> it's a very good film though. Uh, so Pickering would follow in his brother's footsteps, taking up the position of Assistant Professor of Physics at MIT. And a mere two years later, he is appointed professor of physics. So he's climbing up that ladder rather speedily. And Professor Pickering has a nice ling- ring. It does, doesn't it? It sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound good. Um, so Pickering would also return to his academic home of Harvard, uh, serving as director of Harvard College Observatory from 1877 to 1919. Oh, 1877. That works quite well for this podcast, for this episode. It's perfect. There you go. It's perfect. That's so what t- they say in bingo. They say there 1877, Pickering's begins. I don't there know. You go. That's, not, that's not a thing. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying. Uh, so he takes on a legacy of work from college doctor Henry Draper as his death halts his work into the studying of astronomy using photography. 
such a technique was considered to present more potential than that of the usual means of observation and recording using the human eye. So they're trying to get trying to get more scientific, more reliable results. Um, I would just like to prefix this story by saying astronomy is a realm that I find fascinating, but my brain is not scientifically inclined that way. So a lot of the yeah. stuff I'm saying in this, I don't really fully know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the way? Ain't that always the Listen, way? Listen, I found out some really cool things, but a lot of the stuff I was also like, I do not know what these numbers, letters or words mean. So No, but I'm trying. Okay. I am trying. That's the main thing. So, to further his findings, Pickering added to the pool of data assistance. This is a group initially comprised of men. Take note of that, kids. This is important for later on in this story. Thank you. Yes. That compiled and processed astronomical data. But it is due to one offhand comment from Pickering, we find ourselves making the acquaintance of our heroine of this tale. Frustrated with the work of his assistants, Pickering states his belief that his Scottish, or in his words, Scotch, quote-unquote... Get out of here! (laughs) I don't want to go to Massachusetts anymore! (laughs) (laughs) That his his Scottish maid could do Mm -hmm. a much better job. And she did. Well... There you go. So, Willabina Mina Stevens was born on the 15th of May, 1857, in Dundee. She showed promising talent in mathematics, and after leaving school at the age of 14, she became a pupil teacher. 1877, she marries James Orr Fleming, and the couple emigrate to the US in 1878, settling in Boston. And in a classic men are trash move, her husband abandons the 21-year-old Wilhelmina whilst pregnant with their son. What a guy! Some things never change. (laughs) Classic. It's like they write their own reputations and then they wonder why we get angry all the time. You can't trust someone who only gives you a middle letter, the initial of their middle name. Yeah. (laughs) Can't trust it. I said I said R, not R. Oh. oh. <laughs> well, I thought you said R. I thought his name was James R. Fleming. <laughs> no R. So the detail of her life is a little vague, but it is known that she is hired as a maid at some point uh, to work in Pickering's household. It is believed that Pickering admired Mina's work ethic, but also noticed her aptitude with numbers. And in addition to her daily household work, is invited to work part-time as a copyist at the observatory. Women were being admitted to the pool of observatory workers a little more rapidly under Pickering's tenure, forming a group that were known as the Harvard Computers. Mina is credited as being as one of the founding members, being formally invited to work for the observatory by Pickering in 1881. There you go. She's getting out of her mm-hmm. domestic work and now she's working in research at one of the most renowned universities in the world. She's climbing that ivy. Climbing it all the while being a single mum. Single mums are the best. They're so good at their jobs. There you go. What can I say? The queen of multitasking right there. That's it. There you go. So let's talk a little bit more about the Harvard computers because I think we all think of literal like when when i first read this when they were talking about the harvard computers i thought of like big old-fashioned 1980s computers all sitting in a row <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here in the 1880s funnily enough i'm just thinking macbook pro MacBook. <laughs> that's what i'm thinking of um so the computers were a group of women tasked with the gathering of astronomical data computing mathematical classifications and the editing of observatory publications So many members of this group were astronomy graduates themselves. The initial few were unpaid for their efforts before receiving a wage of somewhere between 25 and 50 cents an hour. Yeah. So although this was actually, ironically enough, a higher wage than a factory worker, the women were paid less than their male male counterparts, which was, of Mm -hmm. course, a common trend at this time. The fact that they're getting paid is good, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so Small it is believed, however, 
that this is what led to Pickering's decision to hire women as because they were paid less, he could pay for more staff with the same budget, if you get what I mean. Okay. Which, is a, which isn't a very ethical way to do things, but nonetheless, that's what, yeah. that's what he did so he could get more, more work done. Yeah. Pickering said of the women computers that they were, and I quote, capable of doing as much and as good routine work as astronomers who would receive much larger salaries. Three or four times as many assistants can thus be employed. So there was method to what he was, to what he was doing. Hmm. But he was also a supporter of women entering the field, saying of those that were keen to exclude women from the world of academia, and again, I quote from Pickering, the criticism is often made by the opponents of the higher education of women that, while they are capable of following others as far as men can, they can originate almost nothing, so that human knowledge is not advanced by their work. This reproach would be well answered could we point to a long series of such observations made by women observers. So basically he was saying that uh, women going into academia they're not going to be recorded. Their work is not going to be recorded. Mm -hmm. And if it is, it's all going to be under a man's name, basically. Yeah. So yeah, he was yeah. saying that that is a somewhat flawed argument, but that's, that was people's excuse for not wanting yeah. women to be um, entering into academic fields. So Fleming, although without a formal education in the field, was reportedly a fast learner and was initially tasked with assisting Pickering with photometry, which is a process used to measure the brightness of stars. Oh. Yeah. That's cute. There you go. Also, as well, in researching this story, I learned so much about ast astronomy and what, like, honestly, it's a wild field. Yeah. It's, I know nothing. Yeah. Honestly, and I always forget like that it's obviously a it's a science because it is all to do with physics and yeah chemical reactions and stuff like that. It's wild, but then again, that's because space does scare me slightly. <laughs> yeah, that's the same as me. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the same as me. Uh, so in 1886, Fleming is placed in charge of the Henry Draper catalog. So this project was designed to not only identify stars, but index and classify them by their spectra. Great name. I love that word, spectra. It's yeah, so good. spectra. Love it, love it. The Harvard Observatory was using photographic evidence of stars and Fleming, whose father had been a photographer, she was adept in the use of daguerreotype. So using a daguerreotype ca camera. So not only is she now responsible for the cataloguing of stars, Fleming is also given responsibility for the hiring and managing of the Harvard computers. Okay. So there you go. So she's getting responsibility. She nice. develops the Pickering-Fleming system, which is a way of classifying stars according to the relative amount of hydrogen in their spectra. This is when I start to get a little bit lost because we're talking <laughs> science now and I did not take yes. physics or chemistry. <laughs> I took chemistry, but I did not take uh, the physics. No, I did not. I took the biology because I could remember that. Uh, yeah. Yes. So although having been redeveloped over the years, Fleming's work can arguably be cited as the foundations for the Harvard spectral classification that is still in use today. So in 1898, Fleming is appointed the curator of astronomical photographs at Harvard, and she is the first woman ever to hold the position. Well done. Well done, Mina. So across her career, Fleming is credited as discovering 59 nebula, 310 variable stars, and 10 nova. Sounds lovely. Sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds lovely. Um, and she is also credited with the discovery of the first white dwarf. And to give you, because I, I did write down the description here. So a white dwarf yes. star is considered to be the final evolutionary state of a star whose mass is not high enough to become a neutron star or a black hole. I mean, that's nice. I would like if things just didn't become black holes. That's there nice. you go. Black holes I find quite scary. Yep. They are yep. quite scary. Yep. Um, she is also credited as discovering the Horsehead Nebula, which is located in the constellation of Orion. Oh, I need to look out for it. Yeah, have you never seen Orion? It's above Glasgow I've seen quite Big a Orion. 
I've seen Orion, but I've never taken in a horse head. <laughs> There's a few stars in Orion. I'm not entirely sure which one it is <sighs> and how you tell. That's something I should have looked up. So yes, this nebula was present on one of the photographic plates that she used in her research. So she founded it. Fleming oh. publishes works, A Photographic Study of Variable Stars in 1907 and Spectra and Photographic Magnitudes of Stars in Standard Regions in 1911. Very, very successful lady. And Wilhelmina Fleming died of pneumonia in Boston on the 21st of May, 1911. Her mentor and colleague Pickering would also succumb to the disease eight years later on the 3rd of February, 1919. Pickering's views towards women have received contemporary criticism, although it cannot be ignored that he afforded women far more freedoms and opportunities than his contemporaries. He effectively nearly had a majority female department, which for the late 1800s in academia was very rare. Now, bear in mind that this is all happening around about 18... 70s, late 1870s, early 1880s. Edinburgh 7 have not long... That's not long happened. That's yeah. relatively recent-ish from what I remember. Um, yeah. So the fact that he did give women these opportunities is very, very impressive for the time. Yeah. Quite unusual. Um, so Wilhelmina's name actually continues, ironically enough, to live on within the cosmos itself as the Fleming Lunar Crater was jointly named after herself and fellow Scottish scientist, the inventor of penicillin himself, Alexander Fleming. What a strange coincidence. What a strange coincidence. And of no relation. So so it says. Well. Yeah, there you go. Um, And there was also an asteroid which was recorded on the 10th of February, 1991. And that was named the 5747 Wilhelmina. Oh, nice. There you go. <clears throat> you looked off into the distance there as if you were seeing one. I did. <laughs> no, no, I was just thinking about how I was going to be born about eight months after that. Ah, how lovely. Yeah. <laughs> how lovely. So in 2015, a digitization of the Harvard plate stacks commenced. So that's all the plates, the photographs that were taken by that department. And it was entitled Preserving Harvard's Early Data and Research in Astronomy, or to shorten it, FEDRA. And rather aptly, FEDRA is a Grecian character whose name means bright. Oh, nice. Yes. There's a Greek tragedy called FEDRA. Can't remember who wrote it, but I'm pretty sure I can't remember what happens in it. Something to do with her falling in love with her stepson. All a bit dodgy. Oh, sounds about right in ancient Greek times. (laughs) Fair. Um, So by the August of 2017, 200 of the 2,500 volumes um, of the work had been transcribed and volunteers were urged to lend a hand via the Smithsonian. So they put out a little call and were like, can anyone help us with this, please? That would be lovely. Um, So Dana Bachwin, who was the head librarian involved with this process, said, and I quote, If you search for Wilhelmina Fleming, you're not just going to find a mention of her in a publication where she wasn't the author of her work. You're going to find her work. And that is the starry discoveries of Wilhelmina Fleming. Lovely. Do you know, I think I may have heard about her, but it may just be in researching for stories. See, I think it was when I was scrolling on Twitter or something stupid one evening and something came up about this story about this professor that had made an offhand comment about his Scottish maid being able to do a better job than his employees or students or whatever it was. And I was like, that can't, that can't be true, surely to God. And then it wasn't until I kind of went down the hole, I was like, oh no, actually it was like that. Yeah. Not entirely sure if that's like the the story itself. It's a great starting point. Yeah. But went down the hole and found that Wilhelmina Fleming is this renowned astronomer and scientist that I feel like we've never really heard of here in Scotland. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, astronomy is not an area that I know an awful lot about. It's just one of those things of why don't we know the the name, despite not being astronomers ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. she obviously did important work, and we spend a lot of time looking up at sky. We've seen all the things up there. Well, so why exactly. don't we know more about the people who documented it all? Exactly, yeah. Because I think she was very, very renowned in certain circles over in America, and I think she did get citizenship over there, so I think she is also considered kind of an American scientist as well. Right, okay. But, um, yeah, but she was she was from Scotland and sort of blazed a trail in this academic career at a time when women were very much not welcome in yeah academic establishments whilst also having been abandoned by her husband and raising her son herself yeah yeah the best bit although the thing i do find a little bit strange is that she named her son after pickering like exactly after pickering also edward charles did she take pickering in there as well i can't remember but she definitely named him like maybe they had a secret affair that's a scandal I didn't uncover in my research, so but you never know. Well you never know. I wouldn't put it past yeah. two stargazing lovers, two star cross lovers. <laughs> I can see what you were going for, it's fine. Yeah, and I just got the wrong phrase. You did, you did. It's fine. It's late at night. It's it understandable. Is. I can see the moon. You can see the moon. There you go. Just it's very apt to that story perfect then. Time. Sorry for interrupting your listening, but we have decided to introduce a slightly new segment to A Wee Bit Gothic. So as an interval, we will give you any recommendations for things that we've encountered recently, be it telly or books or podcasts or whatever. So um, welcome to, to recommendation time. Lovely. We'll think of a snappier <laughs> it's name soon. <laughs> it's not a name that's going to stick, but let's go with it. The Wreck Break. The Wreck. The Wreck Break. Okay, You've got that, to have I like an, that. You have to have a northern <laughs> accent for that one to work. So what do you have to recommend for us today, Hannah Brown? Well, today I have a podcast for us, ironically enough. Beautiful. Yeah, lovely. So as we know, very, very recently, Over the Pond in New York, um, the longest-running Broadway show very sadly came to an end a couple months ago. So The Phantom of the Opera finished its record-breaking run over on the Broadway but a couple of the cast members are continuing on with the Phantom Fun. So I've been listening to um, Pod of No Return, which is co-hosted by two former cast members, and they give you a little fun insight into what life is like being on Broadway and have some cracking stories from backstage at good old Phantom. I love it. Yeah, it's great fun. It's a lovely, lovely little listen. And they're about five episodes in. They're very, very recent. They've just appeared. And yeah, it's great fun. And you know we're big fans of this musical on this pod. We are. We are indeed. It's it's very, very, it's very, very apt. But yeah, they cover, they do cover all things theatre as well. And it's great fun. And it's a lovely little light listen. So I highly recommend. So my recommendation is not something that necessarily needs any kind of promotion because... It's a very well-established and long-running running podcast. We love But it's that. called... It's Criminal, and it's hosted by Phoebe Judge, and every episode is a different thing that she's either investigating or a particular person that she's talking to, and it's, a, it's all about crime, criminal things. She's done an episode on Birkin Hare. She did an episode on loads of different murders and things. She even did an episode recently about children that intervene and help when there's uh, crimes committed or there's a person missing or something and how kids will step up and help. And it's some of them are really funny, some of them are really sad. It's a really nice variety of stuff, Uh but it all centres around, in some way, either crime, the criminal justice system, strange laws, all that kind of stuff. It's very interesting. But she's very well established and very popular already, but I do recommend it because it is fabulous. And I only just recently started listening to it. Excellent. We love that. And yeah. that was Wreck Break. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, you have been quite excited about this one. I have. It's something that I, I started to work on probably about a year ago. Okay. And then I abandoned it because it felt too big. Okay. And there was too much to think about. So I've decided to go back and look back into it. I think I've managed to boil it down into something substantial enough, covers a lot of um, key points, but also um, is not going to go on for 7,000 years. I'm very intrigued. So, well, uh, whether or not you've heard about it, I don't know, but it is the kind of thing I grew up knowing. So that's why it's always been in here. Okay. Okay. The World's End Murders is the colloquial name given to the infamous murder of two Edinburgh girls, Christine Eady and Helen Scott, on the 15th of November, 1977. Hey! Oh my God, there's a theme tonight. There is. That was totally unintentional. (laughs) Christine and Helen, both 17, were seen leaving the World's End pub on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh at closing time. Helen's parents reported their daughter missing to the police when she didn't make it home that night, which was something that she had never done before. They feared the worst when they heard on the radio that the bodies of two girls had been found near Aberlady and Haddington. Oh. Yes, this is how I grew up with this. This is literally my my hometown. My hometown murder. Christine's naked body was discovered at Longnidry Bents just as you leave Aberlady by Hillwalkers. Helen's body was found unclothed six miles away in a corn stubble field. Both girls had been beaten, gagged, tied up, raped and strangled. No attempt had been made to hide their bodies. In late 1977, Lothian and Borders Police conducted a high-profile criminal investigation, collating a list of over 500 suspects and taking over 13,000 statements from members of the public. One such statement was made by my granddad. So I messaged my mum to yeah. So I messaged my mum to be like, "Can I just get confirm the deets, please?" And so she said, "Grandma and Granddad were either going to Kilspindy or coming back. Kilspindy is a hotel in Aberlady. Okay, one of the few things Aberlady has. We have a hotel. <laughs> woo! Granddad, <laughs> woo woo, so modern. I know, isn't it? Like, oh, come on now. Do you have electricity as well? Oh, we do. We do." <laughs> Don't have phone signal, though. We don't really have much phone signal. Grandad saw a van sitting at the entrance to Gosford, which is opposite the Bents, the Longnidry Bents. So Longnidry Bents, it wasn't until I was writing this story I actually thought about it. It's a really bendy road, and I think that's why it's called Longnidry Bents. There you go. Um, Never occurred to me before. So when you're leaving Aberlady, there's what we call the mile, because it's a road that from the beginning of the mile to the end of Aberlady is pretty much a mile. Right, okay. So as you're leaving Aberlady, you go to the end of the mile and then Longnidge Bents starts. And uh-huh. just round the corner of one of the first bents is the entrance to Gosford House. Ah, uh, okay. So my granddad saw a van sitting there. He thought it was a strange time to be there, which makes me think that they were leaving Culspindy because it would be uh-huh. late. Uh-huh. Uh, when an appeal went out for witnesses, Grandad called the police. He was interviewed and gave a statement. And it turns out that the van that he saw is most likely the van that the girls had been taken, raped and murdered in. Oh, wow. Yes, 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 yes. So whether or not the girls were still in there, we do <gasps> not know. Whether or not they were in the process of being dumped, we do not know. But that is what the conclusion was, was the van matched the description of what was expected. And most likely, grandma and granddad both saw that. That's terrifying. Isn't it? Isn't oh. it? I had to go to my mum and be like, have I made this up? Because that's wild. Yeah. But it's not made up. That oh was all. God. That's quote from my mum. <gasps> uh, so, despite their efforts, police were unable to identify a culprit. The case commanded widespread attention in the Scottish media at the time, and now a hugely recognisable photo booth picture of the two girls was used by police in their appeals for information. There is this kind of photo booth classic little strip of pictures Uh that are quite iconic. Several witnesses told police that they had seen Helen and Christine sitting near the public telephone in the bar, talking with two men. Neither of these men were traced nor came forward at the time. 
Speculation that the killings had been the work of two individuals was heightened when it was revealed that the knots used to tie the girls' hands behind their backs were of different types. After only seven months, Lothian and Borders police announced that they were scaling down the investigation. Nine years later, their cold case unit instructed further forensic work to be undertaken in the case, reflecting improvements in DNA profiling technology since the 70s. The DNA profile of a male was found on both girls. However, it did not match any of the 500 suspects that had been collated up to that point. 500? 500? It's quite a lot. It's quite a lot of people. Good it's quite Lord. a lot of people. That's, at the time, more than the people that were in Aberlady, probably. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the population of Aberlady is now, but it's not huge. It's not big. <laughs> in 2003, it was determined that the sample partially matched over 200 profiles in the National DNA Database. On October 8th, 2003, following a reconstruction on BBC's Crime Watch, the investigators received a call from a man claiming that he saw a suspicious, erratically driven works vehicle at Gosford Bay the night of the murder, which is still most likely the same van that my granddad saw and reported at the time. Yes. This man hadn't come forward previously, and in fact, it was revealed that immediately following the Crime Watch broadcast, the police received 130 calls from witnesses who had not previously made themselves known to the investigation. Okay. So this is how many years later? 26 years later. Mm-hmm. And there's still people coming forward with information that had never been reported before. God. But this could be a lot of people who didn't know yeah. about the murder. They may have been in the area, didn't know about the murder, and then it wasn't until Crime Watch mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. were like, oh, sugar, we were there. Yeah. Um, so no judgment. Uh, a year later, in 2004, Angus Robertson Sinclair a man who lived in Edinburgh at the time of the murders, was detained in connection with the murders. Mouth swabs were voluntarily taken for analysis. (laughs) That's a hard word to say. Analysis. Uh On the 31st of March 2005, Sinclair was arrested and charged. On April 1st 2005, he appeared on petition in private at Edinburgh Sheriff Court, charged with the murder and rape of the two girls in October 1977. He made no plea or declaration at the time and was remanded in custody. On the 27th of August 2007, the trial of Sinclair got underway in the High Court in Edinburgh in front of a jury of nine women and six men. The presiding judge was Lord Clark. The indictment alleged that on the night of the 15th of October 1977, Sinclair and Gordon Hamilton, which was Sinclair's brother-in-law, who had since popped his clogs, persuaded or forced the girls into a vehicle and held them against their will near the World's End pub. They then drove Christine to Gosford Bay and there or elsewhere attacked, stripped and gagged her with her underwear, tied her wrists before raping her and then killing her by restricting her breathing. He was further accused of raping and murdering Scott in the same manner near Haddington. Sinclair pleaded not guilty to rape and murder, At the commencement of the trial date, Sinclair lodged two special defences, one of consent and one of incrimination, stating that any sexual activity between him and the two girls had been consensual and that if they had come to any harm, the person responsible was Gordon Hamilton. No eyewitnesses, evidence was led. The Crown case was wholly circumstantial. Okay. It was noted that Sinclair owned a Toyota Hayachi, which was a caravanette at the time of the murders. And he had recently destroyed it, meaning that no evidence could be looked for within this caravan. Bit suspicious. It's a bit fishy. A bit Bit, fishy. Yeah, it's a bit. Forensic scientist Jonathan Whitaker gave evidence that swabs taken from Angus Sinclair had matched a mixture of DNA found on Helen's coat. He revealed that the brothers and sister of Gordon Hamilton had provided samples for testing and the results of these tests showed that he also had sexual contact with these girls. Okay. So both men were involved, for sure. On the afternoon of the 7th of September 2007, senior counsel for the defence made a submission that Sinclair had no case to answer due to an insufficiency of evidence. 
In particular, he contended that the Crown had failed to lead evidence that Sinclair had been involved in acting with force or violence against the girls, and that the advocate deputy hadn't provided hadn't proved that any sexual encounter had not been consensual. Following legal arguments on the matter, the trial judge Lord Clark upheld the defence submission of no case to answer and formally acquitted Sinclair before putting it to the jury. This was a decision that led to much in-house fighting in Scottish government and begged the question whether a case such as this should be presided over by one judge. Okay. Decisions of this magnitude and scale should surely warrant the consideration of multiple judges. Following the conclusion of the trial, it was revealed that Sinclair was already a convicted murderer and serial sex offender and had previously completed a prison term for culpable homicide. So he's got form. (laughs) Is this after he was acquitted, this came to light? Yep. Wow. Okay. Yep. Whether, I mean, the courts maybe knew this, but maybe the, the press didn't. Yeah. So it was maybe made public after the trial that he was a murderer and sex offender. But the way that this is phrased fully makes it sound like people just hadn't clocked it. Oh, God. So let's rewind in time just a smidgen. Okay. Sinclair grew up in the St. George's Cross area of Glasgow, which is just down the road. It's, yeah, pretty central. So his obsession with sex was evident from an early age. His first conviction occurred in 1961 at the age of 16, when he pleaded guilty to the culpable homicide of an eight-year-old called Catherine Rehill and served six years in prison. He served six years for homicide? Six years for killing an eight-year-old. Yeah. They've referred to it as culpable homicide as opposed to any kind of murder. What's the difference? It's a very good question. (laughs) Culpable homicide is, in some jurisdictions, including Scotland, South Africa and India, is an unlawful act that results in a person's death, but is held not to amount to murder. Okay. Six years, still not a lot, though. It's not enough. Uh, He was 16, so he was old enough. So, So he had lured, sexually assaulted and strangled her in his family house. Right, no, that sounds planned. Which is just murder. That's just murder. Um, Maybe they were just being lenient because he was 16, I don't know. The calculated manner in which he disposed of her body and tried to cover his tracks shocked the police. He called the ambulance himself, telling the operator, quote, a wee girl has fallen down the stairs. A a psychiatrist's report from the time, which said, quote, I do not think that any form of psychotherapy is likely to benefit his condition and he will constitute a danger from now onwards. He is obsessed by sex and given the minimum of opportunity, he will repeat these offences. But he was given 10 years and only served six. Hmm. Being released in his early 20s, he took up a trade, got married and had a son. However, whilst he was living it up a free man with family and a job, Central Scotland in 1977 was terrorised by a spate of ghastly murders. Six young women, including Helen and Christine from earlier in the story, disappeared after nights out and were found dumped on deserted farmland or waste ground. At that time, police did not immediately recognise a link between Helen and Christine's deaths with the other four Glasgow murders. Those murders were Francis Barker, who was 37, Hilda Macaulay, 36, Agnes Cooney, 23, and Anna Kenny, 20. They'd all been killed and dumped in strikingly similar circumstances. They were bound and gagged with items of their own clothing. But it would be a quarter of a century before police would realise the world's end and Glasgow murders were uniquely similar and most likely linked. Okay. Yes. Sinclair was never convicted for these murders as evidence had been lost. There was also the problem that someone was already in prison for the murder of Francis Barker, the first in a sequence, the first in the sequence from the 1977 murders, and had been in prison for almost 30 years. 
Thomas Ross Young continued to plead his innocence until his death in July 2014. Scottish police decided to ask for a second opinion and turned to the world's foremost authority on serial killers, the FBI. This is all getting very high up in high hegens. Very high up, yeah. Yes. Former special agent Mark Safarek spent months poring over the evidence. His conclusion was that he confidently believed that all six murders was the work of one lone serial killer. In a striking twist, the last person to see victim Anna Kenny alive, Wilma Sutherland, became the wife of Gordon Hamilton, which was Sinclair's accomplice, just months after this spate of murders. Okay, that's weird. Isn't it? That's very weird. Some detectives believe the circumstances of this too improbable to be a coincidence, but Hamilton became an alcoholic and died a pauper's death in Glasgow in a homeless shelter in 1996 before he could be held accountable for any of his actions. Okay. In June 2001, still in prison, Sinclair went to trial and was given another life sentence for the murder of 17-year-old Mary Gallagher. In November 1978, 13 months after the World's End murders. This teenager Mary had been dragged into bushes, sexually assaulted, had her throat cut and a ligature tied around her neck. Again, Sinclair failed to accept any responsibility for the crime and denied all knowledge despite being found guilty by a majority verdict. Sinclair was only caught for Mary's murder after a cold case review but revealed the presence of new DNA evidence not uncovered during the initial investigation. In Mary's case, however, Sinclair had been seen. There had been a witness to the abduction and police had come close to identifying a suspect. This close shave, criminologists believe, was the signal for Sinclair to change his tactics. He needed easier targets and so he began to prey on children. Between 1978 and 1982, Sinclair would rape or indecently assault countless children across Glasgow. As an adult, one victim told the story of how he had lured her into a tenement. She said, quote, He asked me if I could do him a favour and go and take his mum's change up to her, and he told me what close and what door. Then he grabbed me and said, Listen, I've got a knife, and if you don't do as you're told, I'll kill you. I thought I'll just do as I'm told and be quiet, so I just shut my eyes and just hoped he'd go away. It's not known how many children Sinclair attacked during this period. He was finally caught in 1982 and pleaded guilty to 11 charges of rape and indecent assault, although he admitted his victims could have been numbered in the hundreds. I'm sorry, what? And this man was allowed to be walking the streets? So, I mean, the, t- the dates are obviously a little bit confusing at the moment because there's a lot of being in prison for something that he did in the 70s. Uh-huh. But that's happening to this one. So I apologise for the toing and froing, but it's Sorry. kind of, hopefully you're, you're all keeping track. Back to the failed trial for the World's End murders. Uh-huh. Many reports and legal jargon-based information was available to me concerning this double jeopardy. However, I thought it more interesting and less tedious to present the conclusion of the hard work that many lawmakers put in as opposed to snoozing you all with the gibberish. That made no sense to me. Fair enough. So, on the 22nd of March 2011, in direct response to the Scottish Law Commission's findings on the issue of double jeopardy, the Scottish Government passed the Double Jeopardy Scotland Act 2011. The Act makes various provisions for circumstances when a person convicted or acquitted of an offence can be prosecuted anew. Helen and Christine's case was reopened following the introduction of this new law on the 14th of March 2012. Hmm. Three judges set aside eight days of court time to hear a bid from prosecutors pressing for Sinclair to stand trial a second time. Permission was granted on the 15th of March 2014. The trial commenced on the 13th of October 2014. At one stage, the jury visited the scene of the murders in East Lothian. On the 14th of November, Sinclair was found guilty of the murders of Helen Scott and Christine Eady. Lord Matthews sentenced Sinclair to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 37 years, meaning that he would be 106 before being considered for parole. 
No one has ever been charged with the murders of Agnes Cooney, Hilda Macaulay and Anna Kenny because of the missing evidence, but it would be a fair conclusion to say that he was responsible for these as well, and most likely the death of Francis Barker, despite the conviction of Thomas Ross Young, who, as I say, has spent 30 years in jail for a crime he likely did not commit. Following the conviction, Sinclair's brother John said, quote, I would have done time for him. I would have killed him. If I'd known years ago, I'd have pushed him in the bloody canal. And all these people, all these girls, would never have had that. John cut his brother off forever from that day onwards and said, quote, I would just have nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him. He can rot in prison. Which is hard from a sibling. Like, that must be a really, really difficult position to find yourself in. Yeah, well, also, I mean, the fact that, I mean, let's be honest, he had form in committing quite some bad things. So it's somewhat unsurprising he upped the ante. Yeah, it's just kind of wild that he was able to be tried for numerous crimes numerous times. Uh Uh-huh. He shouldn't have been able to ever commit half the crimes that he did because he should have just been in jail the whole time. Well, exactly. It's crazy. Former Lothian's detective superintendent Alan Jones said that a killing spree of this magnitude had not been seen in Scotland in modern times. He said there is no other thing to compare it to. There have been serial killers elsewhere in other countries, but in Scotland, no, there is nothing else. Peter Tobin is clearly one of the worst killers we've ever seen in recent times, but Sinclair is by far the worst. Retired Detective Sergeant Douglas Kerr admitted the look on Moraine Scott's face is forever etched in his memory. Mr Kerr recalled how he tried to shield... I've said all this. He said, quote, I was given the task of going to see Mr and Mrs Scott to tell them that their daughter had almost certainly been found murdered and her body laying, lying in a field. I tried to preserve some of the details because it was so horrific and they were absolutely devastated. And then I had to take Mr Scott down to the mortuary to formally identify the body. I delivered hundreds of death messages to people so was used to getting bodies identified at the mortuary. But this case has lived with me all my life. I can still see the look of anguish and devastation on the face of Mr Scott as he looked on the body of his beloved daughter. In 2014, the year before his death, aged 85, Grief-stricken Mr. Scott himself described the agonising process of identifying his girl. He said, I had to go down to the mortuary to identify Helen. That will always be with me. How anybody could do that to another human being. I sit at nights and I think, well, just what did she go through? How did she suffer? I mean, it's frightening. I just remember Helen as she was and keep wondering where she would have been today. Would she have been married? Would she have a family? Would I have grandchildren? Where would she be living? They have stolen life from two youngsters who had their whole life ahead of them. And in one night, they can just take that away. It's wrong. Very, very wrong. Mr Kerr said that he was initially proud to have been called upon to join the team probing the case, as he saw it as recognition of his skills. But it, came, but it became one of the toughest investigations he ever worked on in almost four decades of service. Christine Eady's family never spoke publicly about the murders, but after the conviction, Helen's father said the ending of Double Jeopardy is Helen's legacy. He said, quote, It leaves hope for all other families within Scotland that if there's a case, if there's a case that falls the same way, there's always a chance for them. And they can come back and get the justice they're looking for. The same is for me and the family, and Christine's family have been looking for. Speaking outside the court after the verdict and sentencing, Kevin Scott, Helen's brother, said that she was a country girl with beautiful blue eyes and a beautiful smile, never to forget. Christine Edie was a popular, friendly and likeable girl whose family loved her dearly. So now I'll give you a quick rundown, because the dates have been quite tricky, uh-huh. of, his, of Angus Sinclair's list of abuses in his life god so 1959 stole an offertory box from a glasgow church age 13 1959 housebreaking charge 1961 committed lewd practices on an eight-year-old girl sentenced to three years probation 
1961, convicted of killing Catherine Rehill, aged eight, sentenced to 10 years in prison, served six. 1970, marries trainee nurse Sarah Hamilton, Gordon Hamilton's sister, and has a son two years later. 1977, thought to have murdered six women within seven months from Glasgow, as well as Christine and Helen from Edinburgh. 78, murdered 17-year-old Mary Gallagher in Glasgow. 1980, illegal possession of a .22 calibre revolver. 1982, pleaded guilty to rape and sexual assault of 11 children aged 6 to 14, sentenced to life in prison. 2000, cold case review of 1978 Mary Gallagher's murder and in 2001 was convicted for that murder. 2007 was the trial for the murders of Christine Edie and Helen Scott and it collapses. And then 2014, the retrial finds Sinclair guilty of the world's end murders. He died alone, incontinent and bedbound in prison in 2019 at the age of 73. And I would like to round off with words of convicting Judge Lord Matthews and the senior prosecutor Frank Milholland. The judge said, quote, You have displayed not one ounce of remorse for these terrible deeds. The evidence in this case, as well as your record, details of which have now been revealed, shows you are a dangerous predator who is capable of sinking to the depths of depravity. The judge said of Sinclair's two teenage victims, Whatever dreams they had, they turned into nightmares shortly after they left the World's End pub, the name of which has become synonymous with these notorious murders. Little were they to know that they had the misfortune to be in the company of two men for whom the words evil and monster seem inadequate. And then the Lord Advocate says, Thankfully, justice has no sell-by date in Scotland. And that's the story of the monster that is Angus Sinclair. Wow. That's... Yes. Intense. Yeah. Good Lord. It's a lot. Now, yeah. I had definitely heard of the World's End murder. I'm sure I'd heard of that before. But I don't know if I knew they were Scottish. Oh, really? Yes, because I'd definitely heard the name before. But I think I presumed it was in England. Well, I suppose World's End is down there. Um, Like, the world, like is that not what they call the very, very bottom That's Land's West? End. Um, Same the World's so. End is the name of a film. By... Ironically, it's the name of a film about a pub. <laughs> and is that not set in southwest England? Maybe yes, that's what's somewhere. Made me yeah, I think that's maybe. But yeah, I think. But yeah, I definitely heard of them. But I mean, that man really should not have been around in society. No. Well, I think this is where my confusion in even telling the story, even though I've researched it for ages, is that he was sentenced to prison and was in prison when he was then being charged with the murders of Helen and uh-huh. Christine. Uh-huh. So he wasn't free from that murder, but he was freed after the, the murder of the eight-year-old. Yeah. Like that. So that, he, was, he did only serve six years for that and then committed so many other crimes. But after being convicted for the assault on children, uh-huh. the, 11, the 11 assaults, from then on, he was bound to spend the rest of his life in prison. Yeah. But then they had the Mary Gallagher case put on top of that. Then they had Helen and Christine's put yeah. on top of that. So he was just never going to get out ever, ever, ever. Yeah. No, that's fair. Nasty piece of work. Nasty piece of work. And again, I suppose it comes back to that whole idea of the, the fact that he did commit murder or whatever they called it at a, at a young yeah. age and... Maybe if he didn't get out, if they weren't so lenient, would those girls, would they have lost their lives? Yeah, that's the thing, is most likely no. Yeah. I mean, as the psychiatrist said, the psychiatrist was like, this man is a monster. He's He's going to do something again. Yeah. He will will always do something again. Yeah. Um, So, but then I suppose maybe there's the limitations of what the law allowed them to convict at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. So there could be an element of that. There could also be an element of people looking at him as a 16-year-old and maybe chose to be a bit lenient because of his, his age. Yeah. But I bet he went you on to, to just be an that. absolute monster. 100%. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, a whole load more 
Oh, it's story like cases and stories that are linked to Angela Sinclair that we just don't know about. Yeah. When was he active again? When was he? When was he? Out? When? How old is he? When the girl? When? What year was that? When the eight-year-olds was? So he was sixteen when she was eight, and that was in nineteen sixty-one. Nineteen sixty-one. So in seventy-seven, he would have been thirty-two. So he did most of his crimes between the the ages of sixteen and thirty-two. Because I literally thought, I'm not going to lie, I thought the twist of the story, when she said, oh, he was active as a serial killer in Glasgow, I was literally about to, I was like, are you about to say that he was a suspect in the Bible John case <laughs> in the late Bear 60s? that in mind, because I think, I mean, Angus, Toby, um, Toby Maguire, that's his name, Peter Tobin, <laughs> <laughs> Peter Tobin definitely was a suspect as Bible John. Oh, he was fully a suspect, yeah. And I sometimes think that I have, in my mind, made Angus Sinclair a potential Bible John. But I think it's just because I'm... Oh, well, hang on, hang on. Ooh! Evidence has been uncovered to suggest the Bible John murders were not the work of one man, but were in fact committed by serial killers Angus Sinclair and Peter Tobin. Yeah, because it was when you said about the girls in Glasgow being found... Was it strangled with a piece of their own clothing? Yeah. I was about to be like, uh, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. With the Bill um, John murders as well. Okay, well, bookmark this because I might. I was telling Hannah before we started recording that my next story is in a way linked to the Angus Sinclair story. So I might just. I'll do a little bit more research into the Bible John situation and Angus yeah. Sinclair and include that. So my story next time will be a little bit more Angus Sinclair, just in terms of Bible John itself. Yeah. And this other idea that I have. Thank you very much for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. A Wee Bit Gothic is an entirely independent podcast researched by Hannah Brown. And me, Chris McLeish. Edited by Chris. And proofed by Hannah. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook to see episode-specific images. And until next time... Was that gothic? A wee bit. The World's End Murders is the colloquial name given to the infamous murder of two Edinburgh girls, Christine Edie and Helen Scott. On the <laughs> Why has he decided that now is the time I to don't know, screaming? but you couldn't get over the timing of that. Finn. <laughs> Finny. He just, he's oh been God. very screamy recently. That's he does so this funny. a lot. Literally, the second you opened your mouth, Finn decides that's the perfect time to have a breakdown. And Trixie's just about to chase after him, so that's going to cause a Fantastic. Okay, well, I'll start again. Okay.